This is the 15th of March when we're recording this, and that is a significant date. It may not be 9-11, but it's a significant date in U.S. history. It is the three-year anniversary since the states in the U.S. started shutting down as a function of the pandemic that we now know as COVID-19. This is AI for Leaders by AI Leaders. Practical, to-the-point content, helping you drive results with AI. Here's Chris and Frank. Welcome to the AI for Leaders podcast. I'm Frank Strickland. I'm Chris Whitlock. Chris, this is the 15th of March when we're recording this, and that is a significant date. It may not be 9-11, but it's a significant date in U.S. history. It is the three-year anniversary since the states in the U.S. started shutting down as a function of the pandemic that we now know as COVID-19. So what everybody has memories uh, seared in their memory, I suspect, of this period of time. What what are your memories about what you were doing, what we were doing uh, during this shutdown? Uh, I was in a traveling posture when this happened, uh, weekly travel, and I was leading an activity a number of consultants that supported an analytic center with one of the uh, federal departments in national security. And um, I remember as we were making this transition, some of our, some of my colleagues were on site every day and, and some were being transitioned to work remotely. And I was trying to grapple with, well, what do I do as a leader? Do I, I stay here, which was my inclination. And if they're going in, I go in, um, or do I go to the remote posture? Ultimately the answer was directed and I, I went fully to the remote posture, but yeah, I, I remember those feelings at the time. Another random factoid, especially early was I'm staying in a hotel that normally had about 250 staff. And I remember talking to the manager and uh, they had gone down to less than a couple dozen uh, people who were there routinely because, yeah, we suddenly went to yeah very low travel environment overall for the nation. So, yeah, those are a couple of random thoughts that I would have. Yeah, likewise, I remember a hotel there in Roslyn um, and being told that the general manager was actually cleaning rooms on a given day because they had cut the staff down so substantially. So that leads us, Chris, to what uh, AI leaders have been and are dealing with, and that is this area of remote and hybrid work. So fundamentally, where we are right now in 2023 is you have three broad models. You have about a quarter of the people, uh, as Gallup surveys, about a quarter of the people that have returned to full-time office work. You've got a little shy of a quarter that are in the fully remote work mode, and then about half that are in this hybrid mode. And as you and I talk with AI leaders uh, on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis as we do, we know that uh, there are some strengths that they're seeing uh, from these hybrid and remote models. We also know they're having some struggles. And so in this episode, what we want to do is we want to summarize some of what we think are the salient data that are starting to come out about how this works or doesn't work 
uh, for AI and uh, knowledge work uh, over the past few years. And then very practically, as we are wont to do, uh, we want to give leaders three leader practices that we think are key to effectively leading AI teams during this time period. So, Chris, let's dive in. Uh, first of all, let's just establish uh, some level setting. This is not the first time that you and I have approached this topic. No. Yeah, I mean, have written about it and to me, there are elements of this, Frank, and we've talked about this before. It's not like we haven't had distributed work. It's not like big organizations haven't had to tackle these problems before and come up with mechanisms. It's just been more so maybe in certain environments and in certain contexts, whereas what this pandemic caused us to do was have to think much more broadly about working remotely. But yeah, it's not the first time and not the first time for us. Yeah. When we started Edge Consulting, our advanced analytics uh, company in the early 2000s, someone asked me, um, there's a very famous um, around the District, Maryland, Virginia area. There's a very famous survey that's published by Washingtonian Magazine, the best places to work in the DMV. And someone asked me, you know, are we going to compete uh, to be one of the best places to work in in the Washingtonian Magazine survey? And my response was, the best place to work is not a place. Uh, so we uh, we didn't, Chris, rent a facility for a couple of years there, and even after we did. Uh, we still had, you know, remotely distributed teams, hybrid teams. It's interesting. Um, yeah, you're always in, you're always going to have that, right? Uh, yeah. Well, it's interesting. Since the 1970s, in technical work at least, um, IBM ran an experiment in 1979. Uh, for those that. Uh, were around then, uh, probably very few of our listeners, uh, but they are aware of the era of quote-unquote dumb terminals logging into mainframe computers. Uh, and in the 70s, IBM ran an experiment where they took five quote-unquote knowledge workers, technical workers, put them at home, put them remotely, and started to measure productivity and very rapidly started to do that with a number of workers. So yeah, right. nothing new under the sun. The pandemic it is. is obviously. I think that's a good way to say it. it's not nothing new under the sun. To me, it's an application of the principle of scaling. We've always, we have 10 divisions in the United States army. They're not all at the same location. We have three <laughs> active duty divisions in the United States Marine Corps. They're not all at the same location. Remote work, distributed work is common and it's been common for a long time. To me, what this changes is the scale at which the dispersion occurs and it can be down to the individual members of teams well, it is down to the individual members of teams where that has not been the case in the past. And I think that's the that's the essence of the challenge is in this much more radically dispersed environment, remote work for individual members of teams. Yeah. How do you navigate that? And what are yeah. some practical handholds? Yeah. So, Chris, relative to scaling and the co-location of teams, uh, interestingly, in March of 2016, you and I published an article uh, in a journal, uh, a CIA organization called the Center for the Studies of Intelligence, 
um, and the name is pretty denotatively descriptive. And you and I did a meta-analysis of the effects of cross-functional co-located teams uh, on the creative work that knowledge workers do. And it's I remember that window. There was so much excitement about video technologies and collaboration technologies. Do we even need to be together anymore? Was some of the thrust when we wrote that article. Yeah. Big book published. You remember death of distance. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of talk going on there. What, What had happened in CIA is for decades you had had CIA organized into these four strong functional directorates. So you had a directorate of science and technology. I put them first um, because I was part of the science and technology directorate. There was a directorate of intelligence is what it was called at the time. It's now called the directorate of analysis. You started your career in intelligence in the DI. There was a directorate of operations and a directorate of support. And under Director John Brennan, there was a reorganization, a massive, you talk about scale, a massive reorganization of CIA. Those functional directorates remained, but there were new mission centers created. And the whole purpose of the mission center around a country or a region or a functional topic like, you know, weapons of mass destruction was to bring together and co-locate these cross-functional teams. And so, Chris, our analysis was a meta-analysis. We looked at studies that had been done by HR firms. Uh, The American Economic Council had done a study involving Google. Uh, There was a number of academic studies and others. And kind of what is a highlight that we saw uh, in that meta-analysis of the effects of location Uh, on knowledge work. Be careful about dismissing it. Uh, It matters. Proximity matters. It's a material fact. You can work remotely. You can work in a highly distributed way, but you should understand that it changes relationships. That has a consequential impact on the trust level between team members and between groups. And you've got to be purposeful about accounting for that if you are going to work in a highly dispersed posture. I remember one fact, and I forget, I think it was an MIT study, but when the distance went beyond 90 feet in an office, there was a significant reduction in the level of interaction across all channels. It's like, I'm going to, I am, I'm going to instant message less with them. I'm going to email less with them. I'm going to talk to them less on the telephone. If they're beyond 90 feet, that's the kind of impact of proximity and crap. Anybody that's been in a long distance relationship can relate to that too. I mean, it's not like is this, it shouldn't shock us. Proximity matters and if you're going to be highly dispersed, you better account for it. You And you better account for it long term. You may survive, but yeah, for a period, but you better account for it long term. So, Chris, um, that was a fascinating meta-analysis, and there was a demonstration of effects on knowledge work for cross-functional co-located teams. We're going to come back to more recent studies, but let's just stop here for now and and take a note for AI leaders that these remote and hybrid work models are here to stay. 
uh, at least for the foreseeable future, the hybrid model we think is going to be dominant. And we're partially influenced by our experience and our intuition from that experience and also by things like a Gallup survey that occurred late last year, which showed that 56% of knowledge workers, white collar workers, are doing their work in hybrid modes. And you can mm -hmm. see that 56% has been increasing uh, since kind of the third, fourth quarter of 2020. And it's just a linear acceleration uh, to the present. And so as we talk to companies and as we talk to leaders and we look at survey data like the Gallup survey and others that we've looked at, we think the hybrid model is probably going to be the dominant model uh, in OPM for government workers, the Office of Personnel Management. Um, in fiscal 2020, uh, OPM indicated that 50% of all federal workers were eligible for some type of telework, some type of remote work. So, so these Which hybrid is models remarkable um, compared to when I started. Uh, yeah, that's remarkable. Yeah. So here's how we kind of net this out before we get to the leader practices. We'd offer one big conclusion, and then, Chris, maybe you can offer our hypothesis. And that first big conclusion is it's too early to draw any sort of sweeping conclusions about the performance of these hybrid teams in AI. First of all, we're still fairly new uh, I mean, the entire economy is going through a, a massive set of changes, which economists don't understand. And AI is still relatively new. These work models are relatively new, even though we've had an evolution, as we noted, since the 70s. You know, these post-pandemic, really high-emphasis hybrid models are still relatively new. And so you take those combination, the model is fairly new uh, in this context, the novelty of AI, certainly at an enterprise scale, relatively new in national security. So our conclusion would be a little too early to, to sort of draw any sweeping conclusions. There's still more to learn there. Uh, what hypothesis, Chris, would we offer, though? Well, I think the, the fundamental thinking is hybrid is a reality, and it's clear enough in these early moves that that's a model we have to account for and offer up three practical areas that leaders can focus on. Two of them are very project oriented and how you engage, how we engage in teams. And one of them is broader. It looks at, um, I think you can think about bigger business units and groups of people, groups of teams and how those interact. So, Chris, let's jump in then to these three leader practices we would suggest that need special attention uh, in the hybrid uh, model context. And the first one is that no one size fits all. Leaders have to design each project for the type of work that the team is doing. So can you envision types of work that would be radically different in terms of lending themselves more to maybe even fully remote work? Oh, well, yeah, of course. I mean, we all experience this all the time. Think about it. How many times, if you look at the course of your life, have you needed a service at your house? Let's say a plumber or an electrician. And you get a team of five plumbers that show up to fix your problem. 
Not very often. Uh, and in the same way, there's services work that, like trade work, plumbing, electrical, carpentry, etc., you don't need a team to do the work. There's a process. There are a series of standards to follow. There's technology that workers use, and it's inherently oriented to independent work. Uh, contact center work is that way, and a number of years ago, um, companies began to enable independent workers at home to handle calls and whatnot. They would work to a schedule, case evaluations for insurance companies and things of that nature. They're a wide range. And it, I think the crux is, do you need to work in a team to get the task done or are the tasks independent? And so I can have independent workers deployed remotely, dispersed remotely, and be very effective. And to me, that's the difference, Frank, when we think about AI work, typical data science work, it's complexity, the nature of the creativity, the multidisciplinary elements of it. You're, you're not an independent worker. You're not a plumber showing up to fix a problem at a home. You're working on a more complex, creative, and multidisciplinary task. Would you say, Chris, so you gave three criteria there, the complexity of the task, uh, the creativity that is required in designing the approach, designing the solution, and then the multidisciplinary nature of the team. Would you say those are a constant across every AI project, or would you say leaders need to pay attention to designing for those three criteria because they're going to vary depending on the project? That's a great question. I, I feel like those three are there every time and you've got to be mindful of them while there may be differences in emphasis. Uh, to me, a good example, we've lived multiple times, Frank, a fast path to ganking, shanking or fouling up an AI and data science task is poor domain or mission understanding. Yeah. And that is one of the elements of a multidisciplinary team is, yes, I bring experts in data science. No, they do not. You cannot assume that they understand the mission expertly. You've got to create a connection there. And that connection needs to be loaded with trust, uh, openness. The, the mission experts need to work well with these people. I, that's kind of a given on all of these projects. While I may come to one where data science has worked in this mission space before and, you know, they know more rather than less, it's still an area I'd be conscious of and the multidisciplinary aspect of it. Yeah. And Chris, I think two leaders can think about, do I need and, and is the task that I'm trying to perform within the project, so we're now down to the discrete task level, I'm in exploratory data analysis, and I'm trying to develop a refined problem definition and the right analytic approach to go for the impact I'm trying to create and the data that I have. Okay, great. What you and I would call the iron triangle of data science. Um, is asynchronous communication that can easily be done, you know, through technology tools, Slack, you know, et cetera. Does asynchronous communication lend itself to kind of slussing that out? 
Do I need more synchronous communication so that people, you know, are spitballing and they're bouncing ideas and leveraging off of one another in real time? The synapses are firing. Um, and does the synchronous communication need to be in person at times? I, think about the pre-production that you and I do for a podcast episode. We, we've done those today. You and I have 30 years of working together. So we'll get to a moment where we talk about culture, but you and I have a very, very common, almost separated at birth, you know, cultural uh, uh, consistency between the two of us. But in planning a podcast, we've used asynchronous, you know, we've used Google Spaces to kind of begin to outline, but we got together in a synchronous mode, albeit virtually, so that you know we could more quickly and more iteratively yeah, and in a more focused way be creative and refining the work we had done asynchronously. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, I would say as well, do you have a new team? Yeah, is a new team being formed for a new task? Is it an existing team, but is tackling? a new problem, but they're used to working together and they're being shifted from problem A to problem B. There are different points of emphasis, you know, that you need to think about, but there, I think the, the essence is there's not one way there's yeah. not one style and a leader's got to be engaged enough to assess the environment and configure appropriately and I would simply assume with most AI work, I mean, we have a we have a pretty passionate issue anyway. You need to watch for single people, solo practitioners, solo Sammy, working on a, a problem as smart as they can be can create a bad outcome. And this is inherently yeah. placed to team-oriented uh, work and integrating multiple voices, uh, multiple perspectives. And as a leader, you've got to account for that then with these other factors. Yeah, Chris, probably the most interesting study that we have found in prepping for this episode was done by a group of Microsoft uh, people in late uh, 21. Um, they took 61,000 Microsoft employees, actually 61,000, 61, yeah, 182, <clears throat> but over 61K Microsoft employees. They took multi-channel communications. So they took email, they took text, they took video, they took phone, they Chat. took data on the number of hours they were working per week. They had a rich data set. And this team published a peer-reviewed article in the Nature Journal. Uh, we'll put links to all of these uh, articles that we're referencing studies. We'll put those links. Uh, That's below. an important one. Yeah. yeah. And let me just read the quote. And I think people will hear resonance with, Chris, the article we wrote, the meta-analysis in 2016, about the caution of kind of thinking that, you know, hybrid and remote uh, can address all of the creative creative tasks that would occur um, among AI teams. So let me just quick quote: Our results show that firm wide remote work caused the collaboration network of workers to become more static and siloed, with fewer bridges between the disparate parts. Furthermore, there was a static decrease and siloed. I'm I'll just pause you for a minute. 
Those are not two words that I would love to hear if my emphasis is creativity and innovation, et cetera. I now have a more static and siloed organization. Uh, yeah, but fact, please yeah. keep going. Yeah, well, just to double down here, and I'll try to say this in a way that doesn't get us into too much trouble, but there are leaders at times that want to put up big walls and big moats around their team. And, you know, they keep their team in and they keep everybody else out. Uh, actually, I'll just say it bluntly. You're effing stupid. Um, stop that. Um, you want, and if you're a government buyer and you're buying teams from industry, you want rich collaboration and interaction among those teams. That's where knowledge development and creative problem solving and development of people are going to occur. So, yeah, this was a, a negative impact. And they finished then saying, furthermore, there was a decrease in synchronous communication and an increase in asynchronous communication. So synchronous communication decreased and asynchronous increased. You would expect that. That's intuitive. Together, though, these two effects make it harder for employees to acquire and share new information across the network. So we just we put that out there to kind of summarize this first leader practice, which is you've got to design hybrid gatherings with the type of work, the type of project and the phase of project in mind. And that's going to vary from project to project. So you're going to have to do this pretty deliberately for each project. We would suggest you kind of have a playbook and you've got to teach that playbook to your leaders if you're a senior AI leader. And you've got to have your project leaders kind of applying this playbook so that that you are designing for uh, the project type and the phase of the project so that you're leveraging the right asynchronous synchronous the right in-person virtual it's as we said it's not a one-size-fits-all i think the second big thing that really matters frank for leaders and those stepping up is the more you're in this hybrid posture and the more you are accounting for remote workers you have really got to put your feet squarely down with respect to process and related structured support. It's important, it's critical to build in checks and interactions so that you're ensuring people are not working too much alone. And to me, the challenge with that is pretty plain. I have a bounded set of knowledge. I, Chris Whitlock, have a bounded set of knowledge. I have a bounded set of experiences. And I, Chris Whitlock, at 25, even more so, ha have bounded knowledge and experience. Well, I don't want the team to delegate crucial aspects of problem solving to one person with bounded knowledge and bounded experience and bounded skill. You want to make sure that people are interacting to get the best thinking on the table, the best approaches, and to catch errors and structured process, structured approaches are really important for the team. Uh, if you treat each week as a new week and we're going to kind of freehand our way through the execution of this, 
I think you're asking for problems. Uh, you need a guide as a leader to what you expect to see. You need to communicate that to all the team members so that they're in alignment and working to standard. Uh, and while you can modify and flex somewhat on a standard, if you don't have one, you're just making it up based on what feels good and yeah. you're opening the door to problems. Yeah, it's, we want creativity, AI leaders, you listeners, you want creativity happening in your teams, but you want the creativity and the content, not in the process and the standards that are used in executing that process. And I'm smart. You, I'll figure it out. I don't need a process. Yeah, right. Um, and, and you get that, right? You, you get, you're dealing with human beings. Some of those human beings are, are literally, um, men's equality smart. Uh, some of them are literally polymaths. Um, I'm thinking about some specific yeah. names and faces mm -hmm. right now. And, and they don't necessarily covet having other people looking at their work. Right. Uh, I mean, that's the blunt reality is you go into a hybrid or remote posture. You've got a variety of personalities. Some of them are very bright. They're MacGyverish and they don't necessarily relish the fact of having their work reviewed, uh, having to go around on their work. They want to sit in their environment and problem solve and code. And while they're, you have to applaud their smarts, that's not a great path for the team. It's not good team behavior, and it's not what you want as a leader for the team. You want interaction, and you better program it, you better structure it, and you better structure reviews or you raise the risk. So, Chris, I want to ask you about um, – you made reference to structured support. I want to ask you to elaborate on that, but before you do, so we have a project life cycle. We have a process that we published in the book and that we also teach about in our courses. Uh, there's a free resource online at AILeaders.com, which is a phase of the project lifecycle that we think uh, a lot of AI leaders overlook, and it's not talked about in any other AI process uh, that we have seen. And so folks can go and, and grab that and also learn more about the courses. We'll put some links below, but AILeaders.com and you can get there. But Chris, you mentioned beyond uh, a structured process for the work, you mentioned structured support, um, and you led something in our last uh, big company evolution at Deloitte in terms of structured support and quality. W what did you mean by that? Well, I think there are a couple of forms that that can take. And people who've worked in big development environments, I think one manifestation of structured support is using big capabilities, for example, like Microsoft Teams, which enable and open pathways for collaboration, which when you marry with processes like Agile and the ceremonies and sessions that happen with Agile, you get a lot of structure around that. You get the enablement of software. You get the guardrails of a process like Agile in a development environment how do you do something similar? Um, another approach to this is ensuring, and it's more of a big organizational play. Do you have experts who can 
look at what is going on. I, I've gone around this past week with uh, programmers who are worried that chat GPT is going to replace them, that they're not going to be needed. I, I don't believe that at all. Uh, and you can imagine it this way. Uh, I have a capability that outputs Russian language text. How are you as a human going to review that Russian language text and know that it is accurate and on point unless you speak Russian and unless you read Russian well? It's the same problem to me in data science, and you've got to ensure that in your team you've got that kind of support. You do not want a team that has one person who can program only and then no ability effectively to read their Russian, right? They might as well be writing Russian when they write code. And if you can't read it as a leader and no one else on your team can read it, then you're entirely dependent on what they have done. And as smart as they may be, they may have made mistakes because we're humans and we make mistakes all the time. And that's what you got to rig in when I say, uh, when I would advocate for support in processes, uh, structure, software, and then other elements that you can draw on. Yeah, this having a pool of experts, Chris, it just, it was, it's so straightforward in retrospect, but it's, it's brilliant in its operation. What I found is, it not only provides a resource that you can reach out and get independent expert evaluation of your project. And the, the person that you picked to lead it, I remember vividly, we once asked, okay, uh, where in the project lifecycle are things, you know, likely to come off the track. And much to my surprise, he said in problem definition. <laughs> and so you, you at all phases of the project lifecycle, the project leader has expert resources that she or he can reach out to, you know, to have a quick review to just make sure that everything is on track. It's just kind of classic, good quality practice. But the second thing it does is it gives practitioners who want to demonstrate expertise, it gives them something to aspire to. So a, a brand new analyst or just a brand new data scientist, um, it, it gives them a target to aspire to. Hey, I want to be one of these quality experts, whatever your organization, whatever label, right. whatever name tag right. you put on them, whatever yeah patch you put on their shoulder. It, it's, it's a really good thing. Um, we saw a lot of motivation and encouragement among junior data scientists and practitioners. Hey, I want to aspire to be one of those people. I want to be recognized as yeah. an expert. And I think you could summarize this, Frank, just as a leader practice, bring structured process and support to your team and then reach beyond your team appropriately for reviews and advice uh, throughout the process. And if you do those two things in a hybrid work environment, uh, you're much more likely to be successful in the output. And it should be foot stomped. A lot of projects aren't successful. Uh, and if we look at commercial, a large percentage of these projects are not successful. So don't take it as a given that you're going to be, right? And if you start in that humble that humble situation of I have a hard task, 
I've got a remote or hybrid team. How do I maximize the likelihood of success? Have a structured process, have structured enablers, whether that's software or, or uh, regularized reviews, and then be willing to and deliberately reach beyond your team uh, to get expertise and expert review. So Chris, we come to the third leader practice, which we'll summarize as no siloed and static organizations. We're going to talk at the organizational level now, as you mentioned, and we think that culture is critically important to counteracting what the Microsoft study and even our earlier article indicated that these remote and hybrid teams can get to a point where they're the teams are static, they are siloed, and as an organizational leader where you're dealing with multiple teams, you, you want to promote, and so therefore you've got to actively work at using interactions to include in-person interactions where you don't allow that kind of static and siloed uh, culture to develop. Exactly. And uh, honestly, Frank, this is to me back to part of the opening this is not entirely new ground, right? It's not like organizations haven't grappled with this before. Uh, to me, I would assert one of the best books written on this topic is Stan McChrystal's Team of Teams. Here, here. The, during the war years, he tells the story of how this happened. I happened to lead some teams that were studying that organization and intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance needs in it, using data, et cetera. But we did a lot of direct observation. We just looked and saw how all of it respirated. And that book lays this out, but that team of teams, it explicitly was addressing what the Microsoft study highlights. You know, how do I break down silos? How do I ensure it's not static? We're innovating, we're evolving. Best ideas are coming forward. What they did in that environment that he describes in team of teams is very commendable for the hybrid work environment. Um, one of the memories that I have is there were multiple reach back agencies where the majority of their people were not in the war zone by design. You can't pack them all in there. It's like the notion that we don't put all 10 army divisions at the same base, right? In the same way, by design, a lot of the support for what went on in the war zones was, quote, reach back, unquote. Well, how do you build trust in those teams? The operators and, and support elements that are going to be forward and those that are reach back. Well, there were a lot of things beyond routine operations that they did purposefully with yeah. design to build trust, to create personal connections in the organization and that team of team cultures. So that's one of the things that I would think about here is hybrid is a particular manifestation. It's not an, an entirely new problem and it's worth thinking about in a systematic way. And that's book is one that comes to mind for me. Yeah. And we would give some, um, generalized suggestions here, Chris, at the principal's level, that deliberate design that soft had and that Stan's organization had about doing things like taking analysts from CONUS, rotating them forward for several months so that, you know, 
they're eating, sleeping, showering, and working, you know, in those long days with the operators and the other forward staff. Um, that level of deliberateness to include deliberate in-person interactions, we think that's essential to developing culture. Let me pause for just a second here, Chris, and just give our listeners some tangible definition because words like culture can can be fairly conceptual. In fact, I remember as a grad student many years ago, um, I was in a program and in the leadership course, um, there was a sociologist, uh, PhD, uh, who said, culture is like pornography, you know it when you see it. And I remember sitting in the class thinking, okay, you went through how many years of doctoral work and wrote a dissertation in order to be able to say that? It's like, no, that's not culture. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you what culture is. Culture is the behaviors promoted in your organization that are based on deeply held values. Cultures, culture is the behaviors manifested in your organization based on deeply held values. In other words, your organization doesn't run on the rules. No society runs on the rules. Uh, I live in Fairfax County, Virginia. The behavior in Fairfax County, Virginia is not based on U.S. Code, Virginia statute, and Fairfax County ordinances. The behavior in Fairfax County is based on a culture, a set of deeply held common values among most of the citizenry of Fairfax uh, County. The, all those laws, the rules in your organization, they're there to deal with the three sigma deviations. <laughs> when someone does something stupid, um, you know, then the rules apply. When there's malfeasance, the rules apply. But day in and day out, the culture are those behaviors that are based on deeply held values. And so then go one layer down, how do you inculcate those values in people? And soft again was a good illustration of that. And it's you a lot closer to the deck plate. It uh, that analogy rings with me on the laws, Frank. But when you get in a particular organization, we've been in some big ones, and then we've supported virtually all of the defense intelligence uh, agencies. That to me is what we're talking about. What what are the regularized behaviors? in the CIA and in the mission centers of the CIA? What are the regularized behaviors in a joint task force in the military? And as you bring AI into those arenas or teams into those environments or the developmental commands that are supporting the creation of new capabilities, those regularized behaviors are what we're talking about. And yeah. how you influence those when you're in a remote work posture and people aren't together regularly. Yeah. So we would say you have to deliberately design some in-person um, activities, deliberately design in-person activities in order to inculcate those values that are going to drive your culture. And the reason being is you're not going to inculcate deeply held values by telling people. Uh, and you're damn sure not going to do it by looking at them through a webcam and telling them. Um, the, it's the not values, enough. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not enough. No, it, it is. <clears throat> leaders can take away this best practice, and I believe it to the marrow of my bones. It's shared experiences. 
uh, again, just to drop on the soft example, but when you take an analyst out of CONUS and you put that analyst downrange with a soft task force, and again, for several months, they are working day in and day out, eating, sleeping, drinking, operating with that group. That's how the culture, how the values get inculcated. So we would suggest this leader practice uh, to AI leaders. You need to deliberately design a select set of in-person interactions across your teams, within a team and across a team. You can do this at the project level. You also must do it at the organizational level, as we're talking about. Um, and you design those with the specific intent of having people share an experience that inculcates your value. So it it's not telling it is experiencing it's seeing it's doing that reinforces the value uh, values and a, a couple of places where we would suggest that uh, first is onboarding of new employees uh, if you're bringing new AI practitioners new data scientists into your organization you need to get them by the stacking swivel in the first week and you need to do an experience with them in person with other people in your organization that helps inculcate the values. Yeah. To um, me, Frank, I, I just, one of the experiences on that note that hits me hard is I, um, I was running an activity that had a lot of people who knew one another very well working in a number of related, but independent teams when we went into a heavy remote posture, we also added a number of new people. Well, the culture that we had previously included a lot of events and interactions, including f informal interactions. Hey, let's go to lunch. Let's grab lunch in the cafeteria. All that went away, right? All of that went away. There were no coffee chats. There were no informal, hey, can we meet early and grab breakfast together? I want to talk about X, Y, All that's gone. And the new people, it was hard for them. Um, there were people who transitioned into my that broader environment who were coming from elsewhere in our big organization, but they were new to this team. It was hard for them. And you just cannot assume with new players to a team in a hybrid environment where you may not be seeing them a lot, that that's going to seamlessly work. You got to be proactive to me is the message. Yeah. So um, the, the second and last area we, we said onboarding of new personnel, Chris, that was a great illustration. We would also suggest, and we've used this again, going back to the early two thousands, that regularized training can be a great way to inculcate your values. Again, you're not just telling people, you're getting them together and going through a training exercise, but that training exercise is being used to help instantiate, drive deep down in their souls uh, one or more of your values. So three leader practices, 
that are especially important, we think, in AI teams and organizations being successful uh, in this hybrid and more remote uh, work environment. Uh, no one size fits all. You've got to design each project team for the project type, and you've got to be mindful of the phases in the project mm -hmm. lifecycle. Uh, no freelancing. Uh, it's important always, but it's essential, as Chris noted, in a hybrid work uh, environment. You have got to have a structured process that you're using across your teams. You have to have standards. You have to train that. You have to inspect it, quote unquote. Um, you, you have to, as a leader, lead it. You've got to evaluate it and, and have structured resources that the teams can pull on. And then no static and siloed organization. You've got to design some in-person interactions that are designed to build trust, build relationships, build collaboration, build culture uh, across your organization. So like all of our episodes, we hope this has had practical value to you uh, as an AI leader as you're working in this hybrid and leading in this hybrid uh, remote environment. It's probably here to stay for a while. Um, this is what probably. we do. Probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, again, we'll put links below uh, to include links uh, to some of our resources. Uh, we appreciate you uh, consuming this content. Hope it's of practical value. We covet your feedback uh, to include feedback on other topics that you would want to see us cover uh, in this podcast. If you would, critically important, subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're taking this in on Apple, Spotify, rate and review. It really helps to get the word out across the national security enterprise we think there's an imperative for AI leadership in national security. We think we have to move faster at scale. And so by you doing those things, you can really help to get the word out. So until next time, we appreciate you. Indeed. Indeed.